Subcutanean. This is a novel that changes for every new reader. No two copies are ever quite the same. This podcast is an unabridged recording of the version generated by Seed 01893. Part 2. Multiplicious. A quotation from Dark Pines Underwater by Gwendolyn McEwen. But the dark pines of your mind dip deeper, and you are sinking, sinking, sleeper in an elementary world. There is something down there, and you want it told. Chapter 10 The first time someone kissed me, it didn't really count. I'm in the closet at the back of the band room, sophomore year of high school, and this annoying girl, Chrissy or Christy or something, has followed me in to grab the music stands, and she's especially giggly and flighty and nervous for some reason, brushing up against me, and then suddenly the lights switch off and she grabs me, and I realize it's a setup. She got someone to stay out there and flip the switch. And in the sudden gloom, she grabs me and crushes her lips against mine. And all I can think of in this moment is Bradley, this cute, sweet transfer student who a month before had found out I also liked weird old music. So he corners me after band one day to talk about it with me. He loves old music, strange music, loves making weird cross-genre mixtapes, and he plays some for me out of the half-dozen he keeps in his backpack, which is also filled with loose-leaf sheets of staff paper scribbled with notes because, oh, he also composes, too. And he's impossibly cute, and I'm so flustered, embarrassed, because as obvious as his interest seems now, back then it's not even possible for me to consider it. I never once think that he might be like me because I've never met anyone like me. We spend hours in the practice room and make plans to hang out again, and then the next day in the hall, some kid from the varsity team shoves him to the ground, hard, sends his books flying, calls him a faggot. I'm paralyzed, half a hallway away, frozen, while I watch Bradley say something from the ground, a denial, maybe. And the jock is saying something back, evidence, maybe, but I can't hear because my pulse is pounding in my ears. I'm too afraid, ashamed, cowardly to go help him, to say anything at all. Risk the ugly spotlight of the jock's face turning on me, too, because he's clearly making a thing of this, drawing a line. Not in our school. I imagine a chalk outline around Bradley. Red graffiti. A queer died here. I can't move, not even when he finishes collecting his things, gets up and walks away, taunts at his back, walks down the hall towards me. And now I can move, but only to turn away, face flushed, heart galloping. And I can't look at him. And I don't know if he sees me there as he passes by, but he isn't at school the next day. And the week after, I hear he's transferred somewhere else. And I never see him again. And now, in the dark closet, as this dumb girl's lips push against mine, all I can think is that it should have been Bradley. My first kiss should have been him. And now I've fucked it up, lost it, failed him and myself, and even this girl whose eyes I can't meet either, as I pull away and brush past her out of the closet, past snickering faces to the door outside, changed, maybe, or maybe not. Her hair was in the way, after all, long, straight, blonde strands of it tasting like strawberry conditioner, so our lips didn't really even touch, let alone tongues. Was that a kiss? Did it count? Who knows? I don't feel like it should. Anyway, I don't feel any different, except maybe worse, somewhere, deep down. Even less experienced, and less ready, and less sure of who I'm supposed to be. I drop out of band not long after that. I've always liked listening to music more than playing it, anyway. And I like to listen alone. I plunged into a pool of steaming hot water, instantly immersed, choking. My scrabbling hand found something slimy but solid and pushed against it. My face broke the surface and I gasped, slipping, struggling to my feet. Water came to my waist. I wiped rank muck off my face, blinked burning eyes open, tried to catch my breath. It was utterly dark. All I could hear was splashing water. Nico? 
I shouted. Nothing. I shrugged off my pack, zipped it open with blind, shaking fingers while struggling to keep it above the waterline, and fumbled around inside. My hand closed on a plastic tube. Glow stick. I pulled it out and snapped it, shook it, frantic. A dim red glow began to bring the world back, a breath at a time. Churning water was everywhere, white and frothy. Steam swayed. A few steps away, a sheer angled shaft climbed back up, lined in oozing black gunk and coursing fluid. The one we'd slid down, presumably. Turning a full circle, the edges of my dim circle of light suggested level hallways, flooded, leading off into darkness in three directions. No sign of Nico. Something dark and coiling swirled in the water, my rope. I grabbed for it and reeled it in. One end was still attached to my waist. At the end of the other, my shiny grappling hook trailed tangled green streamers. I searched the frothing surface but saw no sign of a second grapple or a second rope. Shutting my eyes, I tried to sort through the confusion of the sliding fall. We had tumbled, together at first, my hands grabbing for Nico's slime-drenched shirt, the sodden edges of his pack, but there was nothing to get a grip on. After those first few moments, all I could feel was my own tangled rope, the pasty mulch sliding past me. I assumed I'd gotten ahead of him, or behind. But what if I hadn't? What if he'd managed to stop himself again behind me, wedged himself into another kink in the tunnel? Or what if the tunnel had split somewhere up there? I didn't want to think about the third possibility, but I spent a few grim minutes duck-walking through the water, old rescue-swim lessons running through my head feeling my hands through the muck beneath the churning surface. I found nothing solid, no backpack, no rope, no body. He wasn't here. I was alone. Everything in my pack was soaked. I threw out a waterlogged sandwich and watched it drift in the churning current before suddenly sinking beneath the foam as if someone hungry underneath had grabbed it. I'd lost a crampon in the fall and couldn't find it, so I took the other one off and put it back in my pack. The red light from the glow stick turned everything the same shades black and blood. I had no idea if the gun would still work and was seized by a thick fear now of firing it down here, of how far that sound would carry and what it might attract. But I slipped it into my belt anyway. It still didn't make me feel safe, but I tried to pretend it did. My flashlight wouldn't turn on, even with fresh batteries. Water-resistant, according to the package, but I imagined it had been subjected to an environment outside factory test conditions. I strapped it to the top of my pack anyway, hoping it might dry out and be useful again. I had a dozen waterproof glow sticks, so I wasn't immediately worried about light. But a countdown started, hasn't it? Tick, tock, tick. I stared up the shaft we'd tumbled down for a long time, considering. Climbing back up, without a rope, with only one crampon, without someone helping me, seemed impossible. I tried to picture Nico somewhere up there, struggling to pull himself back up, handhold by slippery handhold. If he made it to the top, he'd throw another rope down to me. Wouldn't he? I waited a long time, as long as I could stand it. It might have only been a couple hours, maybe even less. But it grew more and more maddening to simply stand there, soaked through, bathed in steam and sweat, doing nothing. Wondering if he was trying to find me. Wondering if he'd left me behind. Wondering if he was drowning or lost somewhere in this maze. I thought about what he'd said to me, what I'd said to him. But I couldn't get a grip on it. The words kept slipping away. I couldn't process them. Not then. At last I decided to move. If he was somewhere up there, he'd have to take care of himself. If he was somewhere down here, maybe I could find him. And wasn't I just saying it would be silly to make it all the way down and not explore? Maybe there were still answers down here. Or another way out. I took my keys and gouged a crude arrow into the shitty paint of one hallway, drywall dust spilling out. 
breadcrumbs to find my way back, or show Nico where I'd gone if he was somewhere down here too or came looking for me. And if something else comes looking, you're pointing it straight at you. But there was nothing to be done about that. I picked a flooded hallway and started pushing my way forward through the hot, sluggish water. I wandered. I'm not sure for how long. The black water's surface smoothed once I moved away from the turbulence at the bottom of the shaft, swallowed up by the glow stick's dim red light. There were no longer any curious features or unusual architecture, just an irregular grid of junctions. The infrequent side rooms were always empty. Sometimes the floor or ceiling sloped up or down, not always in sync, so the water level would drift from ankle-deep to above my waist, and the ceiling from claustrophobically low to beyond the reach of my light. The halls trended wider and narrower, too, in unpredictable rhythms. I worried for a while about stepping into a pit I couldn't see and dunking myself again, but there weren't any. Nor were there any stairs up or down, or even light fixtures. Only hallways, branching, recombining, endless. The air stayed steamy, and while the water cooled as I moved farther from the hot inlet stream, it was still uncomfortably warm. I felt hot and clammy, thick-headed. Mists swirled in the air, sculpting the dim red light into strange shapes and shadows. I kept gouging arrows into the wall with a key, kept moving. If I kept moving, I wouldn't have to stop, wouldn't have to think. Walking takes almost no thinking at all. I came to another spot where the hallway widened, but this was different. Running along the indentation on one wall was a row of payphones. I slowed to a stop and stared, wondering if they were really there. They rose from knee-deep water, six of them, each on its own steel pole. The ceiling had risen so high my glow stick couldn't find it, but light stabbed down from somewhere, spotlighting each phone like it stood beneath its own personal streetlight, fierce and yellow after hours of only dim red glow. Water sloshed as I trudged over to the nearest phone, reluctant but intrigued. Payphones don't normally live inside a house. Did that mean something? I touched the black plastic of the receiver. It felt grimy and cold. As if in a dream, I lifted it, held it to my ear. Dial tone. I blinked as it droned in my ear. This didn't make sense. If there was no power this far down, surely there weren't phone lines either. Some telecom grunt hadn't run a cable all the way down here, snaking it through all these endless halls and vertical shafts, had they? Hope they build by the hour. The sound of the dial tone was disturbingly familiar. Without meaning to, I reached out a finger and dialed a number from an old commercial jingle, seven sing-song digits. A voice told me to insert 50 cents. I almost laughed at this familiar banality. I slapped my pockets but had no change. I hadn't expected to need any. I put down the receiver, lifted it again, and dialed zero, still not really expecting anything would happen. After a ring, a woman's voice, Operator! My bluff had been called. I didn't know what to say. Uh, I'd, uh, like to make a collect call? Please hang up, dial star 97, and then the number you wish to call. Say your name at the first tone. Thanks, I managed. She was gone. The silence hung oppressive in her absence. I needed a voice back on that line. With a couple words, she'd made the familiar loneliness unbearable. But who could I call? Water slashed around my knees as I considered the utter inexplicability of my situation. Should I call the police, explain that I was lost in my own basement miles from the surface, ask the fire department to send a rescue team through my bed, down the vertical hallway, and throw a rope ladder down the slimy tube in the giant bathroom? Or maybe I'd call a friend, you know, one who'd believe me, who wouldn't hang up 30 seconds into my story. In the movies, whenever someone says, you wouldn't believe me if I told you, there's always someone to say back, try me. 
this person invariably turns out to be surprisingly open-minded. I knew with grim certainty this was not going to work for me. The only friend I had like that was Nico, and he was gone. I felt desperately alone. My fingers brushed against the dial pad, hesitating. They punched star 97, and then they kept going, tracing out a familiar pattern, a groove deep in my muscle memory. My fingers knew it well. There was a beep, and I said my name. Something clicked and whirred in the receiver. There was a pause, and then a ring. Another. Another. Then someone picked up and said, Hello? Mom! Relief flooded through me like adrenaline. You trust a voice like that on a primitive level, instinctually, in parts of your brain deeper than logic, than thought. She must have heard something in my tone. Honey, what's wrong? What, I only call you when something's wrong? I tried to joke, but my eyes were tearing up and my hands were trembling. I held the phone tight against my face. It smelled like old sweat and institutional cleaner. With my other hand, I wiped my forehead, swallowed. Nothing's wrong. Just wanted to hear your voice. How are things? Tell me what you're up to. I didn't care what she said. I only wanted her to talk and keep on talking. To hear sounds from a normal world and pretend that I was part of it. That I'd ever been part of it. She humored me for a minute, but I could tell she was worried. And I could think of nothing to say that would get me out of here. I'm in trouble, Mom, I finally said, voice breaking. I'm scared. Something's happened. You remember my... my friend, Nico? I rushed forward, babbling. I've lost him, Mom. I don't know where he is, where either of us are, and... This is all too big. I can't handle it. I fucked things up, and we're lost, and I don't know what to do. I bit my lip so I'd stop talking, something pressing down hard on my chest, and gripped the phone like it was my last anchor to reality. Maybe it was. She took a deep breath, let it out. Oh, honey, she said. Is it... is it AIDS? Of all the things to be terrified about right now... That one was so far down the list that my brain just sort of tripped over itself, downshifted straight back to first, and stalled the hell out. Oh, I said, uh, what? No, no, it's not AIDS, Mom. I wouldn't tell you something like that over the phone. I took a deep breath and once again said something I probably shouldn't have. I said it with deadly seriousness. It's HIV. There was an awful silence. Then I started giggling. I couldn't help myself. That's not funny, Orion, she said. But then she was laughing too, and neither of us could stop, even when she kept trying to, kept saying Orion again in her serious voice, which just set me off more, which set her off again too. And if I could have given anything to stretch that moment out forever, I'd have done it in a heartbeat. I wiped tears from the corners of my eyes. I'm sorry, no, it's not that. I, I can't really explain it. I guess I just needed to hear your voice more than anything. I'll... Figure something out. That's my smarty. I could picture her expression when she said this. She'd said it a lot. You know you can always talk to me if you need to, sweetheart. But you won't always need to, and that's okay. Tears were pushing out of my eyes again, damn it. I leaned against the booth, screwing them shut. Thanks, Mom, I whispered. I love you, sweetie, she said. Do you want to talk to your father? And out of everything that had happened, all the unexplained and terrifying and gut-wrenching things, Nothing hit me like those words did. Sometimes words hit harder than a slap. You feel them like 10,000 volts. They sour everything that came before, ruin everything coming after. That's how those words hit me. Because my father was dead. No, I managed in a quiet, trembling voice. 
Oh, he's right here, honey. It's no trouble. Hang on. I stood clutching the phone, unable to move, to breathe. Faint rustling sounds came over the line. Well, hey there, son. This is something you probably won't understand unless you've lost a parent. You have to put things away when that happens. Something is gone, and parts of you went with it in ways that aren't always obvious. You have to accept that this person is not coming back. You may not want that to be true, but it is, and you can't change it. And you need to believe you can't change it, which isn't exactly like acceptance, but still. You do it. You put the pain from those missing pieces in a box and nail it shut, and you don't forget it or accept it, not exactly, but you learn to stop thinking about it. After a while, it's almost like you've buried the box, or lost it. It's gone. And then you hear that voice again, and you realize nothing was ever buried, or lost, or even nailed shut. The box has been there all along, wide open, and everything in it still has exactly the same power to hurt you. It's just been waiting for the right moment to try. Hey, Dad. The words came out against my will. There's been a mistake, I thought dreamily. He's still alive. Just a dream that a freight truck doing 90 smashed into him on a country highway with a busted stoplight, killing him instantly, taking him away from me between one blink and the next. It made sense. It had never felt real, anyway. Some strange multi-year delusion, not easily explained, but easy, so easy, to accept. Or maybe, in this universe, it had never happened. Maybe here, he's still alive. This had never once occurred to me since I'd passed through to this side. It was too huge a change. All the differences were so tiny, so inconsequential. Not like this. Or maybe it's not him at all. Something inside me withdrew to wherever small animals go in their heads while staring down looming headlights. Some residual part of me thought I ought to move, speak, react, get out of the way. But I didn't know how. Good to hear your voice. My dad. He sounded like he meant it. How you holding up? Dad. I wasn't in control. I sounded distant to myself, like someone else was speaking. Dad, what's going on? He chuckled. We were going to ask you the same question. Your mother and I were a little worried after that call the other day. I couldn't think. Call? I said stupidly. From you and Nico. My father hesitated. We couldn't figure it out, son. You want to let us in on the gag? Uh, gag? Sure, all that business about going deeper. My blood was frozen and my mouth had gone dry. What? You said, he explained, voice still achingly familiar, you both said the next time you called, I was supposed to remind you that you have to go deeper. He cleared his throat. That, um... I could hear the rustle of a paper like he was reading off a notepad. I could see him squinting through his glasses. That you're not deep enough yet, and you need to keep going, deeper and deeper, as deep as you can get. He cleared his throat. Pretty mysterious. What's it all about? The ground felt like it was dropping away. So what's the news, son? My father said, a hint of a smile in his voice. You in deep enough yet? I dropped the phone. It swung on the end of its metal coil, spinning slowly. I could still hear his voice, faint and distorted. Ryan? Dad's voice, drifting faint from those tiny holes in the receiver as I backed away, staring. Orion, you there? And my shoulders hit the wall, and I couldn't back away anymore, but I could still hear his voice coming out of the receiver, so I pulled out my gun and shot it. Somehow I hit the dangling receiver on my first shot, and it exploded. Tiny bits of plastic shrapnel cut the air. One whizzed past my cheek and sliced it open. I didn't notice. 
I raised the gun to the boxy metal body of the phone and shot that too. I shot it again and again until the gun wouldn't fire anymore. My ears hurt. The reverberations were deafening, echoing endlessly. I pictured compressed sound waves expanding through miles of hallways like a dangerous thought lighting up more and more neurons, bouncing off skullbone to keep reflecting, multiplying, feeding on itself. A sound crashing up staircases and down shafts and rippling patterns of interference and reinforcement. I stared down at the gun in my hand, thoughts dull, shots ringing and echoing in my head and through the halls. I unclenched my hand and the gun fell into the water, vanishing instantly under the surface without a splash. The phone made a distinct metallic clunk. I looked up at its bullet-riddled surface. Inside, something was tumbling down through the payphones and sides, dinging and plinking past metal obstructions. My gaze moved down, following its invisible path through the body of the phone. Finally, the clattering stopped. The gate of the coin return jiggled as something clunked into the slot behind it. Not wanting to, I edged forward. Part of me reached out while another part tried in horror to call my hand back, but it kept moving. It pushed the gate open. In the coin return was a small brass key. I stared at it for a long moment. Then I snatched the key and pulled back, turning away from the bank of phones in the same movement. I slogged fiercely on through the water and down the hall, moving fast, not looking back. My ears still rang with gunshots. In the silence, that ring kept sounding almost like a distant telephone, bell clanging somewhere far behind me. I tried to ignore them, but the ghost sounds didn't fade for hours. I hope you're enjoying this audio version of Subcutanean, but this is just one way the story could go. Find out how to get your own unique version by searching for Subcutanean on Twitter, Facebook, Goodreads, or Indiegogo. And thanks for listening. <laughs>